Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. You know, speaking of sons, kids, I remember having a conversation with my kids more than once when they were young about the topic of justice, the topic of fairness, because they, you know, something would happen and they would say, well, that's not fair, or something that happens to them, or I would tell them something, that's not fair, and so I'd give them a little talk about fairness and how you often don't get either fairness or justice in this world, and then sometimes you find examples of fairness in some surprising ways. For instance, there was a guy that was once surprised when he was burglarizing a house in Antwerp, Belgium. He was a thief. He fled out the back door. He climbed over a nine-foot wall, dropped down the other side, and guess where he found himself? In the city prison. Don't. That's justice. But I also read another story about a little-known American hero, a school teacher, and a Presbyterian pastor named Elijah Lovejoy. And he left the pulpit to return to working for the press, the media, because he wanted to reach more people about the message. He had a message about the sin of slavery. And some think, in fact, the Civil War might have been averted and emancipation would have come maybe even sooner if there had been more men like him at the time. But after observing one lynching, Lovejoy was committed forever to fight without compromise against that awful sin. And Mob action would be brought against him time and time again. And, and uh, neither that nor all the death threats that he faced and attacks against his character stopped him. In fact, repeated destruction of his printing presses didn't stop him either. He said this, if by compromise you mean I should cease from my duty, I cannot make it. I fear God more than I fear man. Crush me if you will but I shall die at my post. And that's what happened, by the way, four days after he said that at the hands of another mob. He was killed. And not one of the murderers was prosecuted, indicted, or punished in any way. But check this out. One young man who witnessed the murder knew the story of Lovejoy and his martyrdom had just been elected to the Illinois legislature, and he was moved by this man's injustice to go further in his pursuit of justice for slaves, and his name was Abraham Lincoln. So the point of that story is that a gross injustice, that which is unfair, can lead by God's sovereign grace and providence in the world to bring something good and eventually justice from it. Not always, but it can happen. And we'll see that today from our text, which was read, which represents, I think, the greatest injustice in human history, which is the conspiracy of the injustice of Jesus Christ. And we've introduced this conspiracy already, this evil plot, premeditated plan to murder Jesus and kill the Christian movement in its infancy, which Jesus had predicted and prophesied was going to happen On that same Thursday night, the Passion Week in the upper room, they were having the Last Supper, which would become the Lord's Supper. And Judas, the traitor, you remember, among the original 12, left the supper, took off, 
betrayed Christ as an apostate, meaning he denied the faith, he defected as a follower, he sells Jesus out for a fee, he brings a number of temple guards and some Roman soldiers with him to identify and arrest Jesus as he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the pre-dawn hours from Thursday going into Good Friday. Good Friday looks pretty bad right now because this is the greatest travesty of human justice about to take place over the next several hours in real time when the most innocent, perfectly moral man that ever lived on the face of the earth, the God-man, was framed, set up, falsely accused, convicted of false charges, sentenced to death, and then executed on Calvary's cross. We're talking about a conspiracy of injustice. And that happens because wicked, deceitful men are capable of whatever it takes to gain and retain power, prestige, even at the expense of human life. And you one day could be a victim of something like that, to a degree. And all of this, though, happened down to the most minute detail according to the sovereign will, plan, and purpose of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, you think, is that a paradox? A paradox is a seeming contradiction, but it's really not. And yeah, it's a paradox, but what makes Good Friday so good and the gospel, the greatest news in the history of the world, is because what comes out of this conspiracy and this injustice, it's a classic example of how God not only demonstrates his love for us, but he suffers along with us. He relates to our suffering, what we go through, and then shows us how to deal with it. So we're going to dig into this trial, if you can call it that, by our Lord. And we're going to look at the accusations the interrogation that's here, and then lastly, the condemnation. So we'll start with this accusation in verse 53, that they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and scribes came together. You might not know this, but this is the first of six different times within just a few hours, Jesus is going to have to stand before and be mocked and beaten before these officials and magistrates, two high priests, Then he's brought before the entire Sanhedrin. Then he's sent to Pilate, who passes the Lord over to Herod Antipas, who's the head over all of Galilee. And then Herod kicks him back to Pilate one more time. And this is, I mean, just from that alone, this is a travesty of justice. But for starters, let's see who makes up this mock trial, these leaders, okay? Only John's account tells us you had lawyers, you got scribes, priests. They all came together first in the middle of the night at the private home of Annas. Annas is the former high priest. He was one of the most religious, one of the most influential people in Israel at that time. Then the assembly moves to the home of his son-in-law, the current high priest at that time. You're familiar with that name, Caiaphas. So this, this conspiracy is like all in the family here. And by the way, Annas had an axe to grind, so you get the motive here. He was making big bucks behind the scenes because he ran the business operation of the temple. When the people, the thousands, the millions that would come into Jerusalem during the Passover had to have all those animals sacrificed, convert their coins, 
and do all this currency exchange and all this kind of stuff, Annas was getting a kickback, a portion of all of that. And he would even approve the merchants that were there setting up their tables. So a little bit of extortion. He's kind of known as the godfather of that mafia. In fact, uh, some historians would call it, uh, that said the people at the time called it the bazaars of Annas. And what did Jesus do to that business earlier in the Passion Week? He comes and he takes out a whip and he overturns the tables of the money changers. He calls them out, rebukes them. You're robbers in a den of thieves. And uh, Annas is not going to sit by that. He's not going to take that quietly, right? And then Mark inserts this little kind of parenthetical picture of this apostle who followed the Lord, and Mark followed this apostle, and that's Peter. And Peter's fighting for his faith in the midst of all this. He said that night at the supper, remember? He would, I will never deny you, Jesus. I'll never betray you like Judas did. And the Lord said pretty much, no, yes, you will. And here he's about to do just that as he fears for his own life. He's curious. He's following at a distance, verse 54 says. And he's sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And, you know, Peter's the impetuous one. He's curious. He wants to see what's happening. And then we're going to soon see how he reacts to the end of this trial. And accusations brought against him. Because they're accusing him of being a follower of Jesus, which he is. So, and that's a really sad and emo emotional part of the story. We'll look at that later. John even tells us in his account that Peter was accompanied by another disciple who knew Caiaphas. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. The whole council, that word literally can be translated as Sanhedrin, transliterated, and that's made up of the scribes, elders, Pharisees, Sadducees. It's their supreme court in Israel. It's 70 of them. And the high priest would make it 71. And they are seeking, literally in the original language, they're desiring, craving to find some witnesses to testify against Jesus. And when they can't find none, they're going to be false witnesses. Okay? And listen... And injustice means that one party is prejudiced against another, like the accused. And you prejudge the case. Here they're looking forward to manufacturing evidence as opposed to looking at the real available proof that a lawyer would present. They were looking for evidence against Jesus, but they couldn't find any, of course. They couldn't find anyone that would bring any legitimate testimony that Jesus had broken the law or done something wrong. So folks, what do you do when you don't have any witnesses to make a case? Well, you create some. You make some up. How would you like it today if a judge and a jury were working in cahoots with a prosecutor to make up evidence and create witnesses in order to charge someone in advance? Okay, that's what's happening. The hypocrisy here is overwhelming. And you see, the Jews, they had prided themselves on their sense of fairness and justice as a nation because they were God's light to the nations, including the law. If you've been reading the Old Testament with us in our Bible reading plan, as you heard this morning, you already get the sense that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament, really serve as a foundation for our legal system because you see so many parallels. 
And in fact, I'll have you look at, or I'll just mention it, or you make a note of Deuteronomy chapter 16 in the book of the law, the last one there. Listen to Deuteronomy 16 about justice in the beginning from the verse 18. And he says this, you shall, Moses writes, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow. That sounds good, doesn't it? In fact, I'll give you a little taste of Israel's legal system. Just six features of it that come from the law of God. Number one. The accused had a right to trial in public in broad daylight. Is that happening here? Second, the accused had the right to a defense, presentation of a lawyer. Now, I don't think Jesus needed a lawyer. He's the greatest legal mind and speaker in world history, but they didn't offer him one. They don't know that. Thirdly, you had to have the testimony, this is key, of two or more reliable witnesses necessary to convict. They didn't have any reliable witnesses, right? Next, witnesses that brought a capital charge were susceptible to charges of execution themselves if they were false. You don't see that going on here. And fifth, witnesses had to bring verifiable details in their testimony, like this is the day it happened, this is the time, number of details. None of that is found here. A sentence could not be produced, listen to this, until two days after conviction. So there would be a time of fasting and reflection for the judges. And listen to the growing principle that governed their capital cases, right? The Sanhedrin is to save, not destroy life. And that's just about what they're going to do. So why are they doing this? We've talked about the motives, right? The council of the religious Jews, they hate Christ. They fear him. They fear his power, his authority, his influence, which they would rob, they felt would be robbed from them in terms of who would lead the nation. And they were leading the nation in a false form of rabbinical Judaism. They needed to retain their power prosperity, like Annas, and the influence they had. So they have to get rid of him. See, there's no common ground between them and Jesus of Nazareth. They can't coexist. Somebody has to go. And furthermore, this conflict with the Christ might even lead to chaos, might even lead to some revolutionary crisis there, and they can't have that. So in fact, John 18 adds that Caiaphas advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man shall die for the people. It would be efficient if that happened. In other words, better that we kill this innocent man that may be the Messiah than have the Romans mad at us. That's their thinking. And this sort of injustice, okay, lack of fairness, this happens more than we'd like to think all the time. And it's happened to many of the heroes of our faith, right? Joseph, he was in prison unjustly. Daniel came to my mind studying this this week. I mean, he was very righteous. He was intimidating with his lifestyle. 
godly lifestyle to the Babylonians when the Jews were in captivity. So you know what they did? They made up some anti-Hebrew prayer law, which he obviously broke. And so the king had him arrested, condemned, thrown into the lion's den. And he accepted that sentence faithfully in honor to the Lord. And so it says in verse 56, back in the text, for many bore will false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. I mean, remember, this is the middle of the night. Between midnight Thursday, 6 a.m. sunrise Friday, when all this is happening, and these witnesses, because of that hour, they were probably prearranged. This was pre-prepared. You know, you talk about premeditation for murder. Here it is. And these false witnesses couldn't even get their story straight. And of course not. They were liars, and they weren't even very good ones at that. They contradicted each other. And that should have ended the trial right then and there. And some stood up, it says, and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. You see, Jesus, in his first visit to the temple, you read about at Passover time in the Gospels, was three years before, and he did say in... Three days he would rebuild the temple, but that was a figure of speech referring to himself, his body being the temple of the house of God, and that he would die, resurrect on the third day. It was a prophecy. And in fact, now you, by the way, if you're in Christ, those of you in this room, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of the Spirit. But by virtue of Jesus saying, not made by hands back then, you would think that they would have got it. That's a clue. But they misquoted, misrepresented the Lord by ignorance, or I think more likely purposely twisting his words to make their case. And you know the Lord, like I said, he would have made the greatest lawyer, debater of all time. He just exposes their folly and this conspiracy. And facing the accusations, Matthew says that they had a number of false witnesses, and two of them came forward. And Jesus just repeated what he said in, in the garden arrest here before this council. I want you to check out John 18. In John 18, the Lord says in verse 20, Jesus answered them, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. I just love the Lord. And what did he get for that? Let's skip down to verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priests? They blasphemed and punched the Lord of glory in the face. I mean, folks, how hot is hell for those people right now? I don't even have a thought. So from the accusations back in the text, the interrogation picks up, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? In fact, the New Living translates it even more clearly. It, uh, it says, What do you have to say for yourself? And ironically, that's about as close as Caiaphas got to being a real judge here. Asking, Okay, say something on your behalf. And the word silent, I want you to get this. The word silent, Jesus was silent. Look at this in verse 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. 
And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? He remains silent. That is a very interesting word in the original Greek in which this is written. It refers to a meek person. You've heard that word before? That's a Christian virtue. Jesus was meek. And you say, oh, that sounds a little wimpy. It's not. It is one of the fruits of the Spirit, self-control. Think of it this way. Power under control. In fact, the word, that original word would be used in the phrase, hold your peace. The meaning of it was used as a metaphor to describe a calm, quiet sea, even in the midst of a storm. I like that. That's the picture of the reaction and the attitude that our Lord demonstrated to these Jews like he's going to when he goes before Pilate. And the prophet Isaiah predicted he would do this this way at this time five centuries before. Isaiah 53, 7. He was talking about the suffering servant, the Messiah to come. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The Lord didn't say much. He only said what needed to be said. That's a lesson for us. Because it's hard to be meek. It's hard to tame the tongue as James says, especially when you're being offended or falsely accused, right? We tend to be defensive. I'm saying we because it's me, it's you, it's all of you. And oftentimes, we make a greater impact on our accusers when we're silent than when we speak. Our Lord here was not going to get into some little tit-for-tat back and forth over lies that were being said about him. You know, they were untrue anyway. Now, you might think, well, shouldn't we defend ourselves maybe in public if we're being falsely accused or in court? Hey, I read the book of Acts at the end. That's what the Apostle Paul's doing when he's before Roman officials. Yeah, but there's a time for silence and there's a time to speak because Paul defended himself on the basis of religious liberty, freedom, because he wanted the Roman Empire to give him the freedom to preach the gospel. That's why he spoke up. Silence can be powerful, right? You pause, and it can give your accuser a sense of conviction in their own conscience. When you're being falsely accused and you discern that it would be a waste of time, futile to argue, or if it's just your pride that's been hurt, we should ask God for grace to say nothing. But if you feel concerned, though, for the wrongdoer, or the accuser even, and you want to see justice done, and the kingdom advance, speak up. I like what a wise Bible teacher once wrote, Lord, give us wisdom to discern when what is false must be revealed, or if we need your grace and strength to close our lips and keep them sealed. And then when Peter, of all people, wrote to the church, he had this in mind as he's preparing God's people to suffer persecution and all of this. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. And you should make a note of the, where this is. What a great text it is, starting in verse 22. Talking about Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, that's another word for insulted. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile or insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Wow. I think he's thinking of this moment of the Mark 14 text right now. This event, as he was writing this in 1 Peter 2. So silence can be valuable. Don't break the silence unless you can improve it. Jesus did, as we just find in the next question of this interrogation. The high priest again says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed or the Blessed One? What's that? Matthew records the question as, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Same thing. He's asking Jesus flat out, are you the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the chosen one? The, the high priest thinks his, this is the ace in the deck for him. He's been waiting for a moment like this because it is the most incriminating accusation he can make about Jesus if it sticks. Because if Jesus is not the Messiah, he's a blasphemer and they can execute him. So you know he's waiting to pop this question. And this is as important a question, folks, as anyone can ever ask or answer in your lifetime. Peter answered it. In Galilee, Matthew 16, they're gathered around the Lord. They're talking, and Jesus says, who do you think I am? And Peter, illuminated by the Spirit of God, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He couldn't even believe he said it. And I like the Lord's response to this question. Similarly, as only the Lord can put it in Luke 22, verse 67, where it's, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. He just prefaces his answer by telling these guys, you're not going to believe me if I tell you the truth anyway. In a pre-few good men, quote, he says, you can't handle the truth. So I'm not going to tell you the truth. He will tell them the truth. Even though this thing is a farce, that is a critically important question. He's not going to dodge it. So he gives a direct answer, and he's condemned for it. Let's look at the condemnation, verse 62. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Whoa, that's the bomb right there. He's done it. He said it. Okay, to refuse to answer, that would be a denial. Our Lord's not going to deny who He is any more than we should deny who He is when we're asked that same question. Jesus answered knowing the Sanhedrin's going to use this answer against Him. And He had made this confession, this claim, on other occasions before, but He didn't say it often in public because He didn't want to be arrested prematurely. He had a mission. You know, we talked about his covering his identity before a little bit when he was ministering in Galilee, but there are other times he let it out, so you know. In Luke 4, when the Lord preached early in the ministry, he preached at the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and he preaches from Isaiah, the prophecy, and he says to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, they didn't like that. They said, come here, there's a cliff over here on the hillside we'd like to throw you off of if you would just follow us. He also said he was the Messiah to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. 
Twice he healed paralytics in public in front of the Jews, and he forgave the sins of both of, their, both of these men. And after the second time, according to John 5, I don't want you to miss this, because there's no getting around the fact that Jesus claimed deity in his ministry. John chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus answered them, the Jews, because he had healed these men, forgiven their sins on the Sabbath. And he says, my father is working till now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, listen, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself what? Equal with God. For Jesus to say, I am the Son of God, is to say, I am God in the flesh. And the Jews aren't going to have that. Give me a rock. we got to stone the guy. we got to kill him. He's a blasphemer. This is happening in John 5, way back in Galilee. And on top of all that, but wait, there's more. One more. John 8. He's making all these I am statements about himself in this dialogue. I am the light of the world right, with the Jews. They call him a demon. In fact, they say that they're the children of Abraham. And he comes back, no, your father is the devil. And by the way, I was around when Abraham was. What? But he's only like 30-odd years old. They don't get it. They freak out. They can't believe he said that. And he adds this. Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was. You ready? Before Abraham was, I am. The great I am. He just said, I am Jehovah God, Yahweh. The same name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3 when Moses said, what will I tell the people what your name is? I am. I am who I am. It's such a holy name, the Jews in fact can't even write it out. So you get just the consonants that are then pronounced Yahweh. It's amazing. You would think that would be the straw that broke the camel's back right there for the Lord back then. But in this interrogation here, he goes back to the quote about the Son of Man. He identified himself as the Son of Man more than any other title. And he's going back, he uses that because he's going back to the prophecy of Daniel 7 talking about the Messiah to come. And he tells them he's going to come and set up his kingdom. And then he echoes what he said earlier in the Passion Week to the disciples about the end times when he would return in judgment from his Father in heaven at his second coming. I'm coming in power. I'm, I'm coming from the right hand of God, and I'm coming in power on the clouds. So when the Lord spoke, folks, it was always true, it was always bold, and it was always appropriate. Think about it. Think about it for you. You can answer this question in a similar way and in more than one way. Take your pick. Jesus was and is the I Am, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Son of man, Son of God, the Christ, Messiah, God in the flesh. They all speak about the same person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, that might get you in trouble if you say that in some places at some time. And it makes maybe some others feel uncomfortable. So be it. Has to be said. Verse 63 of the text. And the high priest, here's the reaction. 
the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? So this is the big time symbol of righteous anger that a high priest, a judge, an elder in Israel could manifest when they were righteously angry. And for them, they're thinking this is a blasphemy. So this is like an appropriate reaction. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. In fact, in Luke it says, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. The issue is they're the blasphemers, though. They unanimously condemned the Christ, illegally, without the rebuttal, without the time of fasting and reflection, as per two days in the law, and they condemn him, which literally means, from that language, they've rendered a judgment, they've pronounced a sentence, like in a courtroom. In fact, according to Matthew 26, verse 66, the way that account puts it, What is your judgment, they answered. And they said, he deserves death. That's if they can get the Romans to go along with the conspiracy, by the way. That's coming up later. And then finally in our text, the mocking culminates in this condemnation. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him. That literally means with an open hand from the Hebrew perspective. They're slapping him in the face and they're saying, Prophesy! Not in the predictive sense, but, you know, say something, preach something. Amazing. And the guards received him with blows. Means they took him back into custody, they blindfolded him, and they're going to take him to Pilate. And as they're doing so, they keep punching him in the face with blows. They're mocking him. So this plot, this conspiracy of injustice, is the greatest, though, and most necessary of all time, and it's going to continue. So I want to close by just saying two things. Number one, to the real disciple of Jesus Christ, a big part of our hope and glory, the hope of heaven, is that there's going to be a time of true, perfect justice when Jesus comes back, fairness makes a comeback, and all wrongs are going to be made right. That is a God-made promise, folks. I want to read to you from Psalm 94 to give you a wonderful text to hang your hat on as you're thinking about this, suffering through injustice. Psalm 94, 14, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage for justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. So we're waiting in hope now for that. And for now, we lean on the Lord and His grace when injustice comes to us. How do we do that? In the same psalm, I just skip down to verse 20. It says, can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous, condemn the innocent to death. It's happening here. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them 
out. So you can be confident about your future in Christ. We wait for it expectantly. That's what the Christian hope is, by definition. Things are not always going to be this way. Unfair. Unjust. Justice is coming. It's just delayed. Delayed justice doesn't mean no justice. Justice is coming. And we help redeem this world as much influence as we can exert now for justice while we're here. And also, last thing, if you're listening and you doubt whether you are a follower or a true believer of Jesus Christ, I got to tell you, anyone and everyone that rejects Jesus and says no to him is really rebelling against God and spitting in his face. Really is, for all intents and purposes, just like the religious leaders did to the Lord. It's a slap in the face. It's a form of blasphemy, slandering God. You're either saying, I don't believe who you are, like the Jews back then, so I think you're a liar or a lunatic, or you're saying, you know what, you're not a liar or a lunatic. You're, you're the Lord, and I don't care. Blasphemy either way, you slice it. And guess what? As a result, Jesus, as a judge, is going to bring justice against you when he returns if you stay the way you are. Someone said this, quote, men continually misjudge Jesus, but he will never misjudge them. The tables will be turned. The criminals will no longer unjustly condemn and crush the innocent, but will themselves be justly condemned and crushed. So my prayer in a moment is going to be that someone, and our prayers as a congregation, are going to be that someone's going to want to turn from that bleak future facing justice, and they're going to come to their senses, meaning they're going to repent, turn to God, and trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sins. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those in Christ again, for the lesson that you have taught us of what it means to be confident, powered, empowered, but in control in the face of suffering and persecution and injustice, even in this kind of plot of conspiracy. Help us to be that way, to, to be indwelling, Lord, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we would be filled and led by the Spirit, so that that fruit of the Spirit of self-control and meekness would come out with kindness and gentleness. And for those, again, not in Christ, Lord, that fear they may not be, today would be the day of salvation for them. They would turn to you. They would turn to you and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins just by their faith alone, by your grace alone, and that they would understand not only true, meaningful peace and joy, but have the promise of justice in the future, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 